0: Welcome to the Impact 360 Institute podcast, where our goal is to explore biblical worldview and servant leadership to equip you for everyday influence. Here's your host, author and director of cultural engagement, Jonathan Morrow.
1: Welcome to the Impact 360 Institute podcast. Why should Christians care about ethics? I'm really excited about our guest today, which is Dr. C. Ben Mitchell, and he holds the Graves Chair of Moral Philosophy at Union University in Jackson, Tennessee. He also serves as the editor of Ethics and Medicine and International Journal of Bioethics. He is a senior fellow in the Academy of Fellows of the Center for Bioethics and Human Dignity and previously served as its executive director. And additionally, for more than 10 years, he served as a faculty member at Trinity International University. And he's also the author of numerous books, including the book we're going to talk about today, which is Ethics and Moral Reasoning, A Student's Guide. So, Dr. Mitchell, it's great to have you on the podcast today. Thank you, Jonathan. It's my privilege. Thank you. Wonderful. Well, so before we get into the specifics and some of the tough questions or just kind of the different definitions, why do you care about ethics? Tell us a little bit about your
0: story in terms of how you came to care about this topic. Well, I think I've always cared a little bit about ethics, or at least since I became a Christian, because I understand that our moral life, both interior and our life as as citizens, loving our neighbor, is important to the Christian way of, of inhabiting the world, if you will. But I became really interested in the ethical issues, especially uh, the medical ethical issues, when I was a pastor. I had thought I was going to go on later and do graduate work in historical theology. But as a pastor, I was confronted with issues around, say, end-of-life issues. Families would come to me and say, they want to take granny off the ventilator. What should we do? And I'd say, well, what's a ventilator? And uh, then then began to work on the issues related to end-of-life decision-making. And then later in my pastoral experience and even in my personal experience, began to deal with some of the issues around infertility and reproductive technologies, in vitro fertilization and surrogacy, uh, all those kinds of issues. And I realized that, one, there were very few Christians who were speaking into those areas. And there was a great deal of either naivete, uh, ignorance, or misunderstanding among Christians. So I, I wanted to plow in. So I ended up uh, doing a Ph.D. in philosophy with a concentration in medical ethics at the University of Tennessee, bringing to bear my theological and, and worldview insights into the questions. And it's been a fun experience, even though sort of like the definition of flying, hours and hours of boredom punctuated by brief moments of stark terror – <laughs> As you encounter some of these ethical issues, there are those brief moments where you, where you want to pull your hair out and say, I don't even know where to begin to think about this. So it's, it's a fruitful area of research and speaking and teaching, but more importantly, a fruitful area of learning and living for me.
1: Absolutely, and it's so fun here at Impact360 to have you in the classroom teaching our fellows and trying to teach them some of these questions and how to think about these things from a biblical perspective, and that's going to be so useful for them for years to come because we do live in a fallen world where things aren't the way they're supposed to be, and then we figure out what does it look like for us to apply this stuff and actually do good and will the good of others and everything like that. But before we get there, as you look around maybe the culture and maybe even the classroom you teach— What's your general assessment of how we're doing as a culture and as as students that you get to teach in the area of moral reasoning and ethics? How do you think people are
0: doing with that as a whole? Well, I think students are doing uh, pretty much what the culture is doing, and that is uh, we either are – Uh, sort of by default move to a kind of relativism uh, that what's right in your eyes and what's right in my eyes are different and we can't get beyond that impasse. Or, as research has suggested, Research like uh, Christian Smith from Notre Dame has done and other sociologists, uh, research has suggested that our student population is committed to a kind of worldview that we describe as moral or moralistic therapeutic deism. That is, we believe that there's a God and we believe God comes to fix us sometimes when we need him most. But other than that, there really isn't much morality that we can point to, depend upon, agree upon. So the best we can do is just kind of be moral ourselves. But I could never, quote, impose my morality on somebody else, end quote.
1: Yeah, and one of the problems with that, obviously, is if someone has a strong moral view on something, what happens when – you know, your view of morality bumps into somebody else's view of morality, and how do you navigate that? Right. You know, if relativism breaks down in a hurry once, you know, when we care about certain things, and then passions get involved, and strong feelings, or very real consequences
0: are, are involved, right? That's right. And, and tolerance doesn't answer all the questions. I believe in tolerance, but tolerance has its limits. And if somebody says, I'd rather fight than be tolerant, well, then what do you do? You have to think through those issues. That's great. So, we're going to kind of
1: come to some of the particular issues that you raised and some of those questions that even as a pastor you were uh, you were being confronted with in a minute. But before that, I think it's helpful sometimes just to kind of take a step back and ask the question, how did we get here? And in your book, you talk a little bit about this. You talk about the Enlightenment project on— moral reasoning and ethics and how that approached. So first, maybe define what the Enlightenment was and how we're still feeling the effects of that maybe today in terms of how people approach ethics, and then maybe we'll kind of shift gears as we move as a better way forward. But kind of summarize a little bit about how we got here
0: in terms of moral and ethical reasoning. Yeah, it's a great question. So the Enlightenment happened uh, in the 17th 18th centuries in the West, and it was largely a movement to try to construct a morality and other philosophical views, but uh, especially with respect to our question, to construct a morality without appealing to religion. Because in the eyes of the people of the Enlightenment, that period, religion had failed to provide a single moral viewpoint and the religious wars gave evidence that the religions couldn't get along, so Islam and Christianity couldn't get along, for instance. And so we needed a way to appeal to reason to get at uh, morality. So Immanuel Kant, uh, one of the philosophers of the Enlightenment, principal philosophers of the Enlightenment, uh, said we need a way that appeals only to pure reason as a way of constructing morality. And what emerged out of Kant's view and also others was that morality was, first of all, about the the autonomous or self-directing individual. Individuals would determine what's right and what's wrong, and the individual was what mattered. And Kant championed that, and there were good aspects to that, but he even defined uh, individual as a rational human being – So if you had had a disability, for instance, or if you were unborn, you didn't count in the moral equation and the ethical decision wasn't important. If you were a non-human, a dog, for instance, uh, you had even less moral status. So the Enlightenment was a project that resulted in a kind of supreme I, uh, capital I, a supreme uh, individual. And interestingly enough, even though the Enlightenment Philosophers worried because they couldn't find a single moral perspective on the basis of religion in their minds, they also all divided on their view of morality into schools from the Kantian school to the more utilitarian school of John Stuart Mill and company. So so there wasn't agreement in the Enlightenment either. But what, what they all did agree on was the, the supremacy of the individual.
1: And so and they exalted reason, right. and they got rid of religion, right. authority, tradition, Bible, anything like that. And so maybe place that in the context of how we might begin to see this biblically in terms of how we should reason. What's the proper role of reason? And maybe reason is not ultimate, but how does that fit in the equation? What did the Enlightenment get wrong in that regard from a Christian perspective? Yeah,
0: Yeah. and the Enlightenment gave supremacy to the individual reasoner and discounted religious views because they were not verifiable in their minds by the principle or the use of reason. So you couldn't uh, touch God, so God couldn't exist. You couldn't weigh angels, so the angels couldn't exist. You couldn't dissect the body and find the soul, so the soul didn't exist. Exist And so, so everything had to be tested by the scientific method ultimately in order to verify that it existed. All the while, the deeply human desire to know the ineffable, the, the transcendent uh, God still was there. And the Enlightenment led eventually to a kind of nihilism or a kind of darkness that uh, was represented in people like uh, Friedrich Nietzsche and, and others because the Enlightenment despair was not replaced by any kind of transcendent reality like the true and living God. No, that's very helpful. And before
1: we get too far, let's define our terms. How would you define ethics? Um, just for those who are listening right now, what's a good good definition of what is ethics? Yeah,
0: e- broadly speaking and, and generally speaking, ethics is a way of understanding what is right and therefore what is good in a moral sense. In Christian ethics, I would, of course, say that ethics is discerning the will of God with respect to what the right and the good are. So trying to understand what God uh, would have us do – yeah, in, in terms of his revelation, both
1: generally and specially in Scripture. Right. So sometimes Christians um, appeal to a category known as natural law. Mm-hmm. So maybe define what is natural law and is that helpful for Christians and in maybe in how we relate to or interact with our culture around some of the questions
0: of ethics and moral reasoning today. So natural law is the view that there are two books We have on the one hand the book of supernatural revelation, the Bible, and on the other hand, we have the book of nature. And uh, both of them are revealed by God. Both of them are God's handiwork. But natural law emphasizes the appeal to the God who has made himself known in the natural world. We'll know that there is, Paul said in Romans 1 we know that there is a God and that this God is powerful by the things that he has made. We see that in the world. With respect to ethics, natural law is the view that there are certain features of our human experience that reveal that we have a moral nature, that we have a nature that loves or desires either the good or the bad or evil. So we have virtues, those Christian characteristics that… Interestingly enough, almost all cultures identify a set of virtues that are very, very similar. And then we also have vices, the evil, the lust, the envy, the pride, etc. And also most cultures uh, believe that those vices are pretty consistent across the cultures. So one of the problems with relativism is that – and our relativist world is that we make the assumption, it's kind of in the air that we breathe, that people differ on their views of right and wrong. So we can never get past that kind of loggerhead or impasse between two people's different views of right and wrong. And it's true. I mean, in one culture, a certain hand gesture might not be offensive, whereas in another culture, it would. Or in Middle Eastern cultures, famously – If you show the bottom of your foot to someone in a gesture, um, it's offensive. Whereas in our culture, you can go barefoot all day long and nobody cares. So the assumption then is that because ethical values differ from person to person and culture to culture, there's no common morality. When in fact, if you ask people why do you avoid certain hand gestures, uh, they would say, well, out of respect for someone else's way of living or with respect to them. Why don't you reveal the bottom of your foot to somebody in a gesture? Well, out of respect. So maybe the common virtue— is the virtue of respect. And if you look at cultures, every culture has a notion of respect that they value. It may work itself out in different ways, different gestures, different practices, different rules. But that notion of respect is common. You owe respect to certain people. Natural law would look at those virtues, for instance, as Aristotle did and as Aquinas did and and more recent philosophers have, and say those virtues are written in the handiwork of our humanity, if you will, the fabric of our humanity, and you tease them out identify them and tease them out by asking certain questions about why do you believe what you believe and why do you do what you do? Oh, I see. You believe in respect. Well, I do too. Now let's talk about what that looks like. Yeah, what's true. And so, you know, even Paul, you know, begins
1: to address that in Romans two, fourteen and 15, the law written on our heart. Right. In essence, some of those echoes of being an image bearer and all of that coming to bear in the natural law like you so helpfully described, which I think is a really helpful category to begin to find some of those pieces of common ground, perhaps, Mm -hmm. with people in our culture who maybe don't have any respect for the book of Scripture, for example. And that's what I want to come to now, because I know you've interacted with tons of students, and we do, too, here at Impact 360. And one of the questions that I think our culture is asking right now is, okay, well, let's talk about what's moral and what's good, But you're actually not going to use the Bible, right? Because that seems kind of outdated, morally repressive or regressive, you know, especially the Old Testament and all that kind of stuff. So maybe start there. How would you, I guess, begin that conversation of getting the Bible on the table for why we should use it as a source in our moral reasoning, given, you know, people are wrestling with the question, not only is Christianity true, but also is it good? And so how would we kind of engage
0: that? Yeah, it's a a really important question and one that I think we as Christians and as a community— have not always not only thought well about but we've also not practiced well about that, and that is because I think for many Christians and non- Christians alike, we view the Bible as a kind of flat text, and what I mean by that is that the Bible's like a collection of hallmark card sayings, and all of them have equal weight, all of them have equal value, given the application you know if it's a holiday or if it's a birthday or if it's an anniversary, just like uh, hallmark cards and not recognize. Both the genres of Scripture, the nature of the biblical text, that there's history, that there's poetry, that there's wisdom literature, that there are epistles, letters, I'm not recognizing that, and then also. I think there's also a kind of intellectual snobbery or hubris that says, how could it possibly be the case that a book written so long ago could have anything to say about 21st century issues? We were talking even today about in vitro fertilization and surrogacy. How could the Bible possibly speak to in vitro fertilization and surrogacy? What could this ancient text have to offer us there? And I think that that hubris, that intellectual snobbery, is devastating for non-Christians because it assumes that we know better than anybody else. And if you look around, we're not doing so well, so maybe we don't know as well. And then for Christians, I think that flat view of the text is so devastating because there's an entire body of literature, especially the wisdom literature, that could help us, but we don't appeal to that. We're always looking for the law or the rule and missing sometimes just the wisdom of Scripture. So there are rocks on both sides, I think, and we've not done that well. But for the Christian, we value both the revelation of Uh, God's revelation in the real world, the natural world, and the tools of reason to discern some of those things. And we value the revelation of Scripture, and we hold those things in tension sometimes, realizing that ultimately God's revelation in both books, Scripture and nature, will not conflict because all truth, all true truth, every truth that is really truth um, is God's truth. Absolutely.
1: No, and that's really helpful. So, let's obviously there's so many conversations we could have and different topics we could explore but what would be some of those normative principles or ways that christians could begin using the bible or wisdom to begin applying to certain moral questions so what are kind of some of those foundational kind of assumptions, both whether that's from the Old Testament or the teachings of Jesus and how he maybe elevated some of that, but maybe just kind of address that. What are some some of those that we can begin thinking about as we
0: approach moral questions? Well, one of those, and we talked about it even this morning, uh, one of those is God's will for human procreation. For example, if you read Genesis 1-2, you see that God's ideal for human procreation is one man, one woman in a one-flesh relationship for life, and from that relationship, children are given as a gift from God. Um, And what we know by both Scripture's testimony and by natural law or by observing the world is that every violation of that ideal results in human trauma. If it's by death of a spouse, we know it's human trauma, or we know it results in human trauma. If it's adultery we know that it creates human trauma. If it's infertility, we know it contributes to human trauma. Every violation of that ideal leads to human heartache. So that is helpful in in both understanding the nature of the family— the nature of these covenant relationships, covenant marriage, covenant parenting, etc. Also understanding the nature of the fallen world, that bad things do happen sometimes. And the death of a spouse, uh, we, we can grapple with that theologically, but we know that it happens. Infertility. And then we can begin to think about some scriptural examples appealing to some of the narratives of Scripture. So you have the case of Abraham and the case of Sarah not being able to have children. And so they decide that they're going to do a workaround, God's plan, because God has promised that they're going to have children. So they're going to do a workaround, and they invite Hagar into their their relationship. But remember, the ideal was one man, one woman. Now, they brought a third party into the reproductive relationship, and of course, we know it turned out terribly. So my question, the question we discussed even this morning was, why do we think if that's God's idea, one man, one woman, one flesh relationship for life from which we are, are given children as a gift, why do we think bringing a third party's gametes, their sperm or egg in in vitro in fertilization, or bringing a surrogate to carry the baby to term, why do we think that's going to fix things? The scriptural wisdom would say that God's plan, one man, one woman, one flesh relationship for life, for which children are given as a gift, is the normative relationship and to bring another party or their reproductive cells into the relationship should at least give us pause, and we ought to think, is this the wisest thing to do? And of course, there are lots of other reasons why I think those relationships are fraught with problems, but that's how I would begin, thinking through some of the biblical revelation and then what we see just by observation about the nature of families and the nature of reproductive relationships or better procreation.
1: No, that's really helpful, you know, and and I think what's especially helpful about that is just reminding people to start with Genesis 1 and 2 before sin entered the world, that there is a creational norm, there's a way things ought to be by God's good design, and then most of Scripture describes activity in life in a fallen world where things aren't the way they're supposed to be. Right, right. And that's the the hard part, right? And and
0: that relationship was so foundational that when Jesus was questioned about the nature of divorce, for instance— and said, you know, is it right for a man to divorce his wife for just any old reason? Jesus responded by going back to that ideal, and he said, you've read that, one man, one woman, one flesh relationship for life. Uh, so he he anchors his answer to the divorce question. He answers it by appealing to the biblical ideal from creation. I think that's a, a really, really instructive event that should help us do the same thing. And, you know, many of the moral issues, many of the social issues that we're dealing with in our day are because we have violated that norm or are violating that norm in, you know, a multitude of ways.
1: Yeah, no, that's really helpful. So you're referring to the Matthew 19 passage where Jesus refers back to the creational account and— Obviously, that speaks directly to, obviously, questions of gender Mm -hmm. uh, today, as well as the nature of the family, the nature of marriage, uh, sexuality, and all of those things. One question that students may ask or that people will push back and go, well, look, maybe Jesus was just a product of his time. And of course, that's what he would have believed. But here in the 21st century, we now know better, we know differently. So therefore, that shouldn't be ultimate, even Jesus teaching on that. How might we go about responding to kind of an objection like that, or saying, well, he was just a product of a limited culture with lack of understanding and a faulty worldview, because we hear that pushback sometimes. How can we engage that?
0: Well, I I think, first of all, that's where our apologetic task comes in, to try to be able to articulate an argument for the reliability of Scripture, for the the truthfulness of God and his word, including the second person of the Trinity, Jesus, of course. And so that's a huge project in some cases. But I would, you know, another way to go about it is to just ask ourselves the question as a culture, so how is this working out for us? Mm -hmm. Is violating God's ideal, is that working out well? And here's where the Enlightenment I, that big capital I, is the trump card because people will say, well, no, I mean, it's working out for me because this is what I want to do. But it's not working out for the culture. It's not working out for children. Cohabitation, which would be a violation of that ideal, is devastating to children. Single parenting, and this is not, not a, a rap on single parents, but single parenting is hard on children. It's hard on the single parent. We violate God's ideal again. The reproductive technologies don't answer all the problems that sometimes they create. So again, if one just looks at... Nature, if you will, if one looks just at the way things are going, it's not going so well. So maybe we need the ancient wisdom. Now, it's clear, you know, Jesus um, was—how can I say this? Jesus was also a man of his culture. He understood his culture. He lived in a culture. But because he is God, he also can transcend cultures and speak a normative word into all cultures. And that's, that's where we'd have to go ultimately is to say that God's word and the Son of God speak truth into every culture.
1: Absolutely. And at the end of the day, sometimes it comes down to the question of, well, who says so, or the question of authority. And if, like you were saying, if we've made the case that Jesus really was who he claimed to be, that he was raised from the dead, then he brings a unique authority to that question, because in many ways— if the conversation ends up going against what someone sincerely wants to do as the individual, they're not going to like whatever, and we don't like, it, right? That's part of the consequences of the right. fall. You know, people talk about that as the kind of the cosmic authority problem. We, we all like being God. Thank you very much. That's part, yeah. of, the, part yeah. of the problem. Yeah. And so anything that pushes back against my feelings or my emotional pleasure or comfort or happiness, whatever that might be, we are going to bristle. And so that's part of where as Christians, I think we also need to make sure that we're not being taken captive by a culture that is teaching us to think morally and ethically only in terms of what's comfortable
0: or right. or pleasing for me in my situation because then it's right. hard to distinguish right well, that's right, and it's also a reason doctrine's important because if you say that Jesus ought to be heard as an authority on the subject, their next question ought to be why? Just the question you ask at the beginning, why do we appeal to Jesus as the authority? Well, we appeal to Jesus as the authority because he claimed to be the son of God. And he either is the son of God or he's not. And if he is the son of God, then we just made a doctrinal claim. We've claimed that Jesus of Nazareth, the man who grew up in the city of Nazareth in a carpenter shop, that that man is also God. And if he is who he said he is, if he is the God man, the, the man who is the second person of the divine Godhead, then his word matters. We have to pay attention to what he has to say. After all, that's what his father said when he said, this is my beloved son, hear him, pay attention to him.
1: Absolutely. Now, that's really helpful. Well, what I'd like to do now is just kind of shift gears to maybe a couple of just ethical questions, kind of a speed round. Obviously, we could spend hours talking about some of these things, and and there'll be links in the show notes to the books and your your works that you've published on this. But let's just take um, a couple of these topics. One that's obviously front and center in our culture right now is the topic of immigration, for example. And it sometimes seems that Christians have conflicting moral intuition on this one. It's like, okay, well, what does it look like to love my neighbor as myself? But then what is the role of government to protect, you know, and promote good and punish evil? And and do Christians and the government have the same moral obligations? Do they not? How do we think through those things in a culture that where we'd, in a perfect world, we'd love to help everybody?
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: But we can't. So what do we do? Like help the Christian who's really genuinely struggling with – all aspects of, of, say, the immigration conversation. Yeah, right
0: you described the situation very well, and I'm glad we start with something simple. Yeah, you know, that's three <laughs> a softball here. So. It's a huge question, but, but I think you described the tension really helpfully. The impulse of the Christian ought to be, and ought is a moral word. It signals we're talking about ethics. The impulse of the Christian ought to be to love neighbor as self. And in this case, that would mean to reach out to people who are suffering, especially under – either the poverty of their nation or its tyranny, depending on the population. And so I I think that's a good impulse. The tension is that there are some times in which either the national security or the national security in the form of economy might be threatened by, say, an unfettered influx of new members of the society with all of the benefits that belong to the members of society, the health care, the social security, the other benefits. And also, of course, there is the potential security threat of people who want to undermine either through violence or other ways undermine uh, the very government. So Christians have a dual obligation. On the one hand, they are obligated to try to help the suffering, especially those who are most vulnerable. And on the other hand, they also have the obligation to try to obey government. And as you said, Romans 13 teaches that government, when it's doing its job properly, correctly, is to reward the good and punish the evil, not the other way around. And if government is acting in that way, then government has a duty to protect the citizenry, of its nation. So it seems to me, uh, bottom line, it seems to me that government has a role in trying to help us determine the criteria or the categories for appropriate immigration and Christians have a responsibility to reach out both to those who have immigrated and help them acclimate and be integrated into our society and also to try to help and to reach out to those immigrants who can't make it to freedom and so we have lots of ground troops, so to speak, lots of missionaries and people who are even working in uh, NGOs and on government organizations or other ministries to try to help these immigrants, whether they can make it to the United States, for instance, or or not. What we're seeing, unfortunately, in some of the Western world, especially in Europe, is we're seeing... What unfettered immigration leads to, and it ends up leading to a ghettoization of different cultures. So in London, for instance, you have huge pockets of Muslims who are now wanting Sharia law to be their government and legal statute. They want Sharia banks. They want a complete cultural ghetto in the city of London. How long and how well that can last is really, really uh, an urgent question. And it's led to violence in the streets. It's led to lots of social ills. It's not working out so well. And so I think this is one of the huge questions of the hour.
1: Yeah, no, I appreciate your input on that. And it's just that reminder that good intentions don't always lead to good outcomes. And we can feel like we're doing good and actually not do the good that we're intending to and that's part of the complexity of that as well. Another question, you know, what about end-of-life questions? You know, what are a couple biblical principles that a Christian should use to kind of navigate that? I mean, should you try to preserve and prolong life as long as possible, no matter what, at whatever cost? How should we view death? I mean, what, if our parents are aging, how should we—what's our role in that? So what, what are some of those biblical principles we might apply
0: to the end-of-life question as a Christ follower? The first thing I would say about that is that we have to face the fact that we're going to die. It is the most incredible contradiction to me that even Christians live in a death-defying or denying state. We have, as one of the emblems of our faith, a cross on which a man died— We have an ordinance or sacrament that celebrates the death and resurrection sacraments, baptism and the Eucharist or the Lord's table that celebrate death and resurrection. And yet many Christians still live in the denial of death. And so we just don't want to talk about it. Churches don't consider end of life issues. There are very few classes on how to make end of life decisions. Nobody sees it as a church growth strategy to talk about the end of life, even though we're all going to die. And so we have to have this conversation. And I I think it's not the best time to have the conversation when you're in the throes of that decision. What should we do for granny? Should we keep her on the ventilator? Should we put her on the ventilator? Is euthanasia assisted suicide? Are those appropriate or ethical practices? When or if ever do we stop treatments? And those are are critical questions. So, So my general response would be, If we understand that there is a time to live and a time to die, as the wisdom literature teaches Mm us, um, then we should prepare for both. Prepare for living and then prepare for our dying. And I think that means that we should anticipate the kinds of questions that are going to be coming down the pike. With our highly technologized society and our highly technologized medical system, we now can keep the body alive alive beyond what natural uh, the natural lifespan has been in the past. And knowing if and when to quit is not an easy subject, or if and when to stop doing things is not an easy subject. So I think Scripture helps us by pointing out the reality of our dying, the hope that we have after we die, and then Our notion of the sanctity of human life reminds us that one of the things we ought not do is to unnecessarily harm human beings, imagers of God, so we ought not kill them by assisted suicide, we ought not participate in their suicide or euthanasia. We can get to the place, uh, and we want the patient, uh, the person, him or herself, to, to get to that place if and, and not to coerce them, uh, but we can get to the place where we say, I've run my race, I've finished my course, I'm ready to die, and I don't want any more, you know, treatments I hesitate just a second when I say I don't want any more treatments because I often hear people say, uh, not thinking about what they're saying, well, it's time to discontinue care or we ought to stop caring. And there's never a time to discontinue care. There may come a time when we say I don't want that next drug or I don't want that next chemotherapy or radiation treatment or whatever that is. There may come a time when we say, I don't want that. But I would argue that when we make decisions to discontinue treatment, we ought to increase the amount of care. Mm -hmm. And Christians need to help especially other Christians. But, but, well, let me restate that. Christians ought to help other Christians, but maybe Christians ought to especially help non-Christians prepare for their dying. Mm-hmm. Because we stand, as it were, between Earth and heaven for those people, and those who don 't know Christ desperately need to come to a saving knowledge of him before they die so i 've kind of talked around your question, maybe there 's something more specific, or maybe that that gets at what you want no, me to no,
1: I think those are address. super helpful categories. I know you know, like what you 're saying in there, that palliative care is fully appropriate to, yeah. to help people be comfortable, even when you decided you know this is not going to fix what is hurting you, but this will help keep you comfortable as the disease or as this takes its natural course, you know, and we should be attentive to that, you know, and we should be advocates for that to care for people well. But I appreciate your insights on that because it's, yeah, but speak to that.
0: Yeah. I mean, unfortunately, we confuse some categories sometimes because the assisted suicide movement as a movement is supposedly there to relieve human suffering, so what we do is we give a patient a drug to take to end his or her life because of their suffering. Well, the problem is we have not, first of all, we've not separated out pain and suffering. Pain is a noxious effect of a, of a certain stimulus, to be scientific about it. But pain is treated by pain medication, by analgesics. Suffering has lots of different causes. And you can suffer from pain. But you can also suffer from emotional issues, uh, unresolved issues in a family, uh, spiritual suffering. There's all kinds of suffering. So what the assisted suicide movement tries to do is treat people's pain by ending the painful experience— and forgets all the other reasons that people suffer, when if we would address the suffering that people feel, they may not want assisted suicide. They may not want to die that way if we could help them resolve the other experiences of suffering in their lives. And I think this is, again, a a place where we've, we've not done well at helping people die, and we've outsourced it to hospitals or nursing homes, and we're not good Carers of the dying sometimes. Yeah.
1: And as Christians, we ought to be. And so we ought to do better and, and move into those areas for sure. Well, obviously, there's so much we could talk about, so many good questions. But, you know, I just. Appreciate so much just your lifetime of study and work in these areas, just your scholarship and your clear thinking on this. I mean, the book that we've been talking about today is Ethics and Moral Reasoning A Student's Guide by Dr. C. Ben Mitchell. You know, and if you're listening to this, whether you're on, you know, driving around, commuting to work, or on treadmill, or running around the neighborhood, you know, one of the things that I hope has become obvious is that our ethical life and what is right and wrong matters a great deal, especially as a Christian and a follower of Jesus. And we want to bring a biblical worldview to that. And so hopefully this conversation with Dr. Mitchell has given you some categories. And it's also maybe helped you remember that, that the world that we're raising our kids into is a very complex world. I mean, we didn't even get to talk about biotechnology and future, you know, can we and should we and all that kind of stuff. And so we need to give our kids the gift of a biblical worldview when it comes to these topics. And these some of these resources by Dr. Mitchell are excellent. That's one of the reasons why we have him and others, and we have conversations about this with our Impact 360 fellows. And during the summer, whether it's Immersion or Propel, to introduce students how to think carefully about this and to make decisions without just relying on their feelings or what the surrounding culture says in the moment. So, um, Dr. Mitchell, I just want to thank you again for being on the podcast today and just your work and highly recommend your book, Ethics and Moral Reasoning, A Student's Guide. It's a great short read to introduce
0: you to a lot of important topics. Well, thank you, Jonathan. It's, it's been my privilege and pleasure, but I have to say also um, what a great experience it's been here at Impact 360. I had known about Impact 360 for a long time, and we've gotten some of your students who've, who've come to Union, and they're all fine, fine students who have a great worldview, foundation, to bring to their college experience. Many of them end up in our honors program and have such a rich contribution to our life and in our community. But but the energy in the in the classroom today with the students uh, here at Impact 360 has been a real encouragement to me. I, I'm more encouraged about the future having been here today uh, than I would have been had I not because these are fine young men and women who are invested and being invested in in ways that will make them Uh, Lights on a hill. And I'm so grateful for the work of Impact 360.
1: Well, those are very kind words. We sure appreciate you. And if you're listening right now and you want to find out more, you can go to impact360.org and find out if you're a student, your son or daughter uh, would be a great fit for one of the things that we're doing here at Impact 360, whether that's during the summer or our fellows, which is our gap year. And we'd love to share more about that with you. And so until next time, I hope you take the opportunity to think carefully about why you believe what you believe and then how to apply that to everyday life. Thanks very much.
0: For more information about our on-campus worldview and leadership experiences for students and our accessible online courses like Explore Truth and Explore the Resurrection, visit impact360.org. Impact 360 Institute, know, be, live.